Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Hello, big-hearted human. I am thrilled to bring you this episode as part of the School of Wellbeing's Best of 2022 series. This six-part series will be shared each Monday in addition to a brand new episode on Friday to give you a double dose of wellbeing education to get you recharged and excited about the year ahead. These episodes represent the ones that you love the most, the ones that you listen to most frequently, and the ones that I feel particularly proud of. If you haven't had a chance to listen to this episode yet, I hope you'll enjoy it. And if you've already heard it, it will refresh your memory and take your understanding to the next level. Thank you for listening and being a part of this growing community of big-hearted educators. I hope you enjoy this game-changing conversation. Daniela, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Hello, Meg. Lovely to catch up with you. We've known each other for a while and it's exciting to be in this space with you. I am really looking forward to this conversation because everybody is talking about teacher wellbeing now. And you and I have been talking about this topic for a long time, but it feels like people are starting to talk about it more and more and more. Thank goodness, I say. I mean, both of us have been in the student wellbeing space for a long time and talking about the teacher wellbeing, or I like to say educator wellbeing, because teaching staff and non-teaching staff, you're in the same sort of environment and ecosystem. And yes, it's been a challenge talking about it, but now we're all talking about it and um, it's uh, I'm really excited to be a part of that conversation. So Daniela, how did you get so interested in the idea of well-being in schools? Gosh, Meg, it's a story, but I'll summarise it as much as I can. I've always wanted to be a teacher for as long as I can remember. I remember being in high school, um, seeing young people learn things that I was sharing with them, whether it being peer support or whatever else, and that aha moment. So I'd always wanted to be a teacher. And then I worked in the government system high schools for about 10 years and loved every single moment of it. But I was also suffered from this enough syndrome, which is I'm not enough, I'm not doing enough, it's not good enough. I felt like there was just, it was never ending. So it became really heavy and really draining. So I thought, you know, after 10 years, I thought there's got to be something else because I can't be doing this for the rest of my life. I was spending 80% of my time on stuff that I didn't really enjoy. So I found, uh, I've always been a seeker of knowledge. And so um, I found Rudolf Steiner education and I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing, holistic. It's really fit in with my student wellbeing frame. And um, so I spent three years while I was working full time retraining as a Rudolf Steiner teacher and um, I thought this is going to be the answer and I was fortunate enough to get a position at that school. I thought it would be the answer but what I didn't realise is that the issues are very similar regardless of the schools in terms of workload, admin, student issues, parent issues and so on and so while I'm a great advocate of Steiner education it just I was like oh my gosh I'm so tired. You know there was the students that you go above and beyond and do anything for and then they're the students that you just, if, as I was driving in the driveway, I thought if I just nudge them a bit with my car, knock a bit of sense into a couple of them, oh, that would be fun. Um, and then the parents, some parents, true partnership. You're thinking, wow, this is amazing. Thank you. And then there's other parents, they'd walk in, they'd open their mouth, and you think, oh, my gosh, that's why. Why did they even bother? <laughs> and then there's the teachers to this day. You know, teachers are still my best friends. And there's others that I thought, oh, my gosh, I hope you choke on your lunch. 
Isn't that terrible? Shocking. And so my background's PE or PDHB in New South Wales or physical health uh, education. So I was the only PE teacher in the school. And so um, every time there was a parent meeting, I had to go to it. So year three on a Monday, year four on a Tuesday, year five on a Wednesday, organising all curriculum assessment reporting, um, then all carnivals, then all sport. I was also in charge of, uh, I was a year advisor to my class and also took on the role of mentoring beginning teachers. Not because I wanted to, but they just came to me. So I figured I may as well do it. So I was doing this for five years. So I've now been teaching full time for 15 years and I was done. I was spent. I was driving to work in tears. Um, I was cranky with everybody in my personal life. Um, I stopped blaming me at this point and now I was blaming everybody else, the system and the executive and everyone. I thought this is not healthy and it's not sustainable. So I embarked on another quest, another journey, so I've got to find another way. And one of my strengths is love of learning that I frequently overplay because I'm always learning something new. And so I embarked on a quest of my own personal discovery of who am I and what is important to me. And through that quest, um, formulated my business, my company, which is Teach Bobbing. And in that journey, um, I've never left education. I've worked for Outdoor Education Group and for the New South Wales Manager, organising school curriculum at camps. I've written programs for ReachOut.com and Inspire Foundation. I've been lecturing at Western Sydney Uni, Sydney Uni and Macquarie Uni for over 10 years and um, all for the way of building teacher wellbeing. So now I have the privilege of travelling around Australia, helping schools prioritise staff wellbeing because it wasn't around when I was there and I wish it was. I love so much of your story and particularly this idea of not enough. As educators, people working in schools, we're big-hearted humans and we feel like if we just work harder we'll get on top of it more and more and more and more. And what we're learning is it does not matter how hard we work. It does not matter how much more we do. Some things are just not sustainable. Absolutely. And it's it's been my life learning and I still struggle with it, to be honest. Um, but you know, everything's a journey. I even have my, my mouse pad. What do you do when you're a busy person? You make your own mouse pad. And mine says, um, no matter what gets done or what is left undone, I'm enough. And at the end of every day, I have to remind myself that there is no finish line. And I don't know if that's exciting or depressing, but there is no finish line. And whatever gets done, that's enough. And I'm enough. So it's really important to catch those moments where we're being unnecessarily tough on ourselves because the world is tough. Teaching is really tough at the moment. It has been and people are tired and exhausted. I just have to share a quick story. I remember in my first years of teaching, I was a type plus, plus, plus. I was teaching aerobics in the morning, working hard during the day, studying my master's in the evening. And every Friday afternoon, there would be this bag. It was that bag of marking that on the Friday afternoon, you think, I'm going to get all these things done. I'm going to get so organized. I'm going to bounce in on Monday. So I'd take home this bag. The bag would remain either in the car or in the doorway. And I'd spend the whole weekend thinking about the bag that I really should get to, but I'm too exhausted. I just want to chill out and recharge. Then I'd take the bag back to work. And I remember someone in my staff office, his name was Chris. And Chris used to say, hey, Meg, how are you going? How's that bag of shame? <laughs> It's so true. You noticed. And then I got to the point of I'm not going to take it home because I'm not going to do it. Like getting to that point where enough is enough. 
Yeah. And that it's okay. It's actually okay to say, actually, that's enough now. And one of the things that uh, my, my key message that I share with everybody, and I say, write this down as if I am a human being, not a human doing. And it's called well-being, not well-doing. And we are human beings, but we're programmed through the system and through social constructs and all these other spaces and through our own doing as well to be machines. And we're not machines. You know, the compliance, the, the accountability, the ticker box, the reporting, the assessment, all of that compliance lends itself to mechanics and machine and ticking things off. But that's not who we are. And if we're going to have a well-being conversation, we need to talk about us as a human being, not a human doing. And we get so addicted to this. Well, what are you doing today? And what have you done today? And how busy are you? And we use busy as a badge of honor. And um, I think, oh, my gosh, we just need to stop. We don't need more stuff. And we need to reflect and say, hang on a second, how am I? What do I need right now? Start to start with the basics at the moment. Yes, start with the basics. So when you look back over your career and all of the schools that you've worked with, what do you think has changed in the last 10 years? So much. I mean, so much has changed in the world. I mean, no one could have predicted a global pandemic and here we are. I have to remind people that this is not your school pandemic, Sydney, Melbourne, Australia. It's global. And the conversations, and I know you have these conversations too, Meg, conversations with teachers around the world, they're feeling the same. doesn't matter which country it is. And so you've got the increase in administration, increase in compliance, the increase in feeling I'm being micromanaged, you know, we get told what to teach, when to teach, who to teach, how to teach, when to go to the bathroom, when to eat, when to have holidays, but be innovative and creative in the middle. And you think, oh, where is the space to do that? <laughs> so we, it lends itself to learn helplessness, but we need to reframe that and say, well, there are things we can actually control. And for me, it comes down to demands and resources. I always show a graphic of demands and resources being on a seesaw and demands on one side and resources on the other. And a seesaw don't, never really stays still. It's always adjusting and always moving. And so what happens is as the demands increase, we sort of lean to one side. And what we need to do is we need to build our resources to bring it back into balance. And when I say resources, I mean our internal resources um, of how we think and how we behave, and then our external resources, which are the people around us. Because um, what's happening at the moment is the demands are increasing and the resources are reducing in terms of, you know, staff retention, staff numbers, um, and lots of resourcing is really out of whack and out of balance. And then also the fact that there's these blurred boundaries between home and work. We live in a 24-hour society and sometimes we're our own worst enemy where we don't switch off. We don't turn off the email notifications. We feel like we have to respond to parents at 7 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night when we actually don't. Yes, I still remember the first time we had NAPLAN at our school and I remember the tension in all the executive and they were coming around to check that we read the script perfectly <laughs> and I felt like, oh, is this big brother? Like I yeah. really felt that sense of I am being watched, making sure that I read this script word for word. Mm. Yeah, it's one thing to have standards. It's another thing to um, have this, you know, control and command with compliance. I was recently reading Stephen Covey. He's got a, a new book out called Trust and Inspire. And he talks about how leadership 
has changed and needs to change for a changing work world and changing world. And it's no longer the military command and control with hierarchy. Um, it's more a case we need to trust and inspire our people. And in, I love the word inspire, but have an inspire leadership model that I use with teachers. And it's the inspire is to light the spirit within. And how do we light the spark within as opposed to the heavy handed compliance from above? And I think one of the big things that's changed in education today also is we're losing trust in each other. We're losing trust in our leadership because there is so much to come compliance and control and command. I remember some days thinking it would be good if I could teach my students today. Absolutely. And we feel pressured, um, you know, crowded curriculum as well. Um, also, I do some coaching with some beginning teachers and um, I was speaking to one lady and she was teaching kindergarten and she was so stressed and burnt out and thought she was going to leave teaching and I said, just tell me what's happening. She's like, I've just got to get through all the curriculum. I said, they're kindergarten. It's term two. It's okay. <laughs> They've got time. It's like, no, I've got a, 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 all of these things I have to do, these dot points and these outcomes and the assessment and the reporting. And she said, I just sit at my desk um, writing down what the students are doing because I don't have time to talk to them. I said, stop it. <laughs> you need to talk to them. It's just craziness. Our students are so important. And one of my biggest fears as education is changing, as the pressures are getting higher, as we're getting more and more focused on me and what I have to get done, we're losing the ability to be present with the humans that we teach. Absolutely. And often when I'm speaking to secondary teachers, I say, you know, who do you teach? And they say, oh, I teach science, I teach math. I said, no, you teach a human being. You just use the language of science and math to communicate with them. But you're actually teaching a head and a heart. You're not just teaching a head and you're not just putting information in the head. You're building literally a human being. But if we are going to build human beings, young human beings for there to be these amazing, incredible next generation, then we as educators need to build our skills. We need to build our social and emotional skills. If we want teachers to think differently and act differently, we need to give them the space and build the capacity for them to learn to do that because schools are learning institutions for staff and students, not just students. And if we want our students to be well, the research says time and time again through so many different avenues, whether it be Sue Roffey or Faye McCallum or um, so many places that student wellbeing uh, basically requires staff to be well as well. So there, there's reciprocal. And I sometimes I cringe when I hear and see funding for student mental health but nothing for staff mental health. And I think, oh, my gosh, we're going to fund all this research and all these resources for the newborn baby but nothing for the mother. And I think, oh, my goodness, please. We need to support both. We need to prioritise both. And looking at it from that systems perspective, that we're all in this system, I remember when I spent some time living on a farm and the farmers talked so much about the weather. They talked so much about the soil. It was conversation over and over. And I thought, that's interesting. It's kind of like a school. The leadership of the weather, the staff of the soil, and then the students have the opportunity to thrive or not, depending on that environment. And now I think that within that micro ecosystem, we're in climate change. So there's, you know, a lot changing and really thinking about how do we support our staff? Absolutely. I love um, Brof and Brenner's ecological approach. So, you know, the micro system to the macro to the meso and so on. And um, one of the models that I use when I'm working with schools to help people 
actually understand what well-being is because I think that's the biggest first starting point. A lot of people don't understand what well-being is. I frequently run workshops, whether it be three till six in the afternoon or four days with staff. And I people walk in and say to me, oh, are you the well-being lady? And I go, um, I must be. I'm here to do a well-being session. They say, oh, where's the massage oils and the yoga beds? I say, wrong workshop. That's not what we're doing. And they're like, oh, I was, I was with a school yesterday. I said, what do you think we're going to be doing? They said, oh, breathing. I said, breathing's really important. If you don't breathe, you die. Consider yourself learned. <laughs> but I talk, really unpack, give people an opportunity to explore what well-being means. And I talk about well-being as in the three layers of the, the ecological approach of me. What are the decisions that I can make for me that are in my control? Then there's the we. What are the decisions I can make for the relationships that I have in front of me? So the relationship with that student, the relationship with that parent, the relationship with my colleagues, so that's the we. And then there's the us component, which is the system. And the system does have a responsibility to play. I don't know where this quote comes from, but it's that metaphor of when a plant is failing um, or wilting, we don't fix the plant, we fix the environment in which the plant is operating. So we do need to look at the system. So when I talk to schools, I talk about the we, the me part, when I talk about the five domains of well-being, you know, what are we doing for ourselves cognitively, mentally, emotionally, socially, physically, spiritually. And when we talk about the we part, this is where I draw on coaching psychology to say, well, how can we have better conversations with each other where we actually walk away feeling alive and inspired? as opposed to drained and sucked dry. Um, and I use a lot of strength conversations and so character strength conversations to give us a language. We don't have a language to do that. I would organise, I don't know what your experience is, Meg, but I would organise a carnival or an excursion. Spend 10 weeks planning. And on the day of the excursion, I will have three people coming up to me saying, Daniela, just letting you know you've double booked that room. And I think, oh, my gosh, get stuffed. Like, are you joking? And they say, oh, but we're just trying to help. I said, please be less helpful. I said, wherever did we get the idea that to help someone improve is to highlight what they did wrong? We don't do that with students, but for some reason we think it's acceptable with staff. And I'm here to tell you it's actually not, and we need to stop it. It's not okay. The lens that we have for giving feedback to students is positive, future-focused, specific, and timely. We need to take on that and use that same lens that we already know with staff and we say oh but I don't have time you do have time it's called making a decision to say hey caught you being good and it's really important it's it's free doesn't require an email a committee meeting paperwork it, it doesn't require cost it's a conversation and that's why most of my works with government schools we say we haven't got the resources I say you don't need resources to have a better conversation so they're the powerful parts and when I work with leadership I say right now we actually have a legal obligation to reduce the psychosocial hazards in the workplace. And this comes down from the ISO um, 45003 and the Safe Work Australia stuff around psychological health and safety. We do actually have to reduce workload. We need to increase peer support relationships. We need to look at staff recognition. We not only look at, need to look at the physical hazards, but we need to look at the psychological hazards that exist in the workplace as well. So there's three layers of conversations um, which are very complex and we start slowly. So when I'm doing whole staff, we stay on the me and the we. And when I work with leadership, we go into the us component of like, how can we address some of these psychosocial hazards in the workplace?
It is such a powerful framework because when you think about the me, it's what am I doing and what can I be doing? When I think about the we, I think about the quality of my relationships. How am I showing up in my relationships? And then the us is as a system, how are we functioning? What's happening within this culture? And it's so important to notice those three levels instead of just focusing on either just me, I'm not doing enough, it's not enough, I have to change versus the system has to change and bringing in this nuance at every single level. Absolutely. Because what sometimes happens, Meg, is you have, so for example, executive will see staff struggling. And they'll say, oh my gosh, our staff are struggling. What can we do? I know, we'll get a coffee cart. And so they get a coffee cart in on the Friday or whatever it might be. And then you have staff going to get a coffee. And as they're standing in the line waiting for their coffee, they're mumbling under their breath, how's this coffee going to help me do my reports? Is that what they think of us? And so then executive hear that and say, you know what? Now you're ungrateful. I didn't have to get a coffee cart. I hope you choke on it. And so we have this disconnect because we're trying to solve us issues with a me issue. And the same thing with mindfulness is sometimes people go to um, a workshop and I'm all for mindfulness. I practice regularly, uh, meditate regularly. It's very helpful for me, my busy mind. But it's not for everybody. And so sometimes when people say, oh, I went to a workshop, here's what you need to do. It's term two, report term, go and be mindful. And you think, oh my gosh, now I'm cranky. <laughs> Sometimes uh, when I'm doing consulting with schools and I normally work with over you know, uh, 12 months to two years and I have a model that we look at, well, what's the context? What's happening now? That's the first thing. What's happening for your school? And is it term one or term four? Is it week one, week 10? And then let's identify a vision of, well, how do you want things to be for this term or next term? So let's prioritise a few goals. And then we have the tools. Here's a toolbox of resources. I've got lots of different cards. I have chat box cards, connect cards, strength cards. There's activities. You can do mindfulness. You can do your coffee cart, steps challenge, bake off, different tools. But it's got to be the right tool for the right context towards the right goal. Because if we just pick up, we read a book and we go, oh, here's a well-being tool. Let's all do that. It's not going to work. And what that does is it disrespects people. It patronizes people and your best intentions sometimes really flat. And um, my experience is the most stressed person in the school is the head of well-being because everybody's coming to them saying, what are you going to do to fix my well-being? And they're like, oh, I don't know. I sent you an email with a great link to a website. (laughs) It needs to be more strategic. Yes, we need more strategy. And it's true what you say around more schools are getting this role of head of well-being or director of well-being whether that's staff or students, and they're the ones who I'm talking with regularly and they're the ones who are at their absolute limit because, as you said at the start of the conversation, they don't have the resources for the demand. Sometimes I say, imagine if we were trying to teach maths with just one head of maths and no team. There's so many things that we need to think about. Imagine, I always say to people, imagine um, someone came to you and said, what's your student wellbeing strategy? And he said, oh, we give you nine a pizza day on Friday. And like, yeah, and? And I say, what's your staff wellbeing strategy? And they go, oh, we gave everyone a barbecue. I'm like, no. <laughs> we need to build people's capacity. Just as we draw on the science for student wellbeing, we need to use the same science for staff wellbeing. That doesn't mean that we take our student wellbeing program and carry it over for staff. 
Because what works in organisations, organisational wellbeing is different to student wellbeing. Um, when we're talking about pedagogy, we draw on the science to identify best practice. In the wellbeing space, the science that I draw on are four areas. I draw on positive psychology and I also draw on that positive psychology in organisations. So positive organisational scholarship, positive organisational behaviour, Jane Dutton's work on high quality connections, Fred Luthen's psychological capital, Kim Cameron on positive leadership. So that's the science there. Then you've got social and emotional learning, which is all your castle stuff. Then you've got coaching psychology. Let's have solution-focused conversations where we're actually building people's capacity to think and problem-solve, otherwise known as growth mindset thinking. And then you've got the psychological health and safety space, which is all about the compliance and the things that we need to do to put policies in place to actually support and reduce psychological harm. It's more than EAP support. EAP support is the top of the pyramid. What we need to do is we need to have preventative stuff down the bottom as well. I mean, we're both PE. We both know the health promotion debate of do we spend money building a fence at the top of the cliff to prevent people falling off or do we spend money at the bottom of the cliff for the ambulance to pick up people when they leave? Unfortunately, 98% of our budget in Australia is on the treatment and only about 1% to 2% is on the prevention. The space that I prioritise and am very passionate about as I know you are too, Meg, is the preventative space. That's the space that I um, think we can do better. I know we can do better and there are little things that we can do and that's that's the space that I play in. And it's such an important space because as we've recognised through this conversation, the role of teacher has changed so much. I think about the origins where the teacher was the font of all knowledge. They had um, weapons that could hurt children. You had to sit and listen. It was very much a 2D model. Students didn't have a personal life. No one asks, no one tells. We come here to learn and we leave. And now we've transitioned into a much more 3D model where we're acknowledging people are human. Teachers are human. Students are human. However, our skill set to deal with that transition hasn't been provided for us. We haven't been scaffolded in that change to support the human element in the classroom. I still remember some of the first big student issues I had, and I had zero skills. Nothing was mentioned when I was at university about how do you deal with a student having a panic attack or how do you deal with a student who cannot get on a bus? Where was that training? It wasn't there. And so noticing that there's this big gap and how can we really support educators with the emotional load and labour that they're involved in every single day. So when I work with schools, I'd say with a me, we and us, and I'll basically speak to principals and say, okay, how do you want your staff to think and feel or behave? And um, they'll say, I want them to be emotionally intelligent, socially intelligent, own their own feelings, own their own behaviours, be able to have difficult conversations. And I said, oh, great, that's wonderful. And I said, and you've given me a three-hour workshop to do that. It's not going to happen. It's like you want a human being transplant in three hours or can you come and deliver something in one hour? I say, what impact would you like after one hour? What impact would you like after a 12-month program where we actually have meaningful change where they tell us what they need and want as opposed to us thinking that we know what everyone needs? I always um, use the metaphor of being a personal trainer, so head of well-being. I say, you are a personal trainer. You are there to provide the motivation, the accountability, the support, the resources, the tools, but you can't do it for them. You cannot do it for them. You need to invite people to participate in different initiatives. 
if people want to come, they do. If they don't, they don't. But your role is really there as the support agent, as a personal trainer with the knowledge and the skills and the expertise, but we invite people to participate in that journey because um, it's, it's never done. <laughs> Just a little story that came to mind, Meg. I was working with a school the other day. They, someone came in. They said, oh, we did this well-being thing two years ago. And I said, well, I went to the gym two years ago too, so what? <laughs> it's, it's not something you do once. It's an ongoing journey. The science is always changing. There's so much to learn. And we're always changing. Our needs as humans are changing and our season of life is changing. I often just reflect about why did I get so interested in wellbeing? Because it's never finished. Why couldn't I get something that was in an Excel spreadsheet with a formula? <laughs> There's still time, Meg, still time. (laughs) (laughs) And the amount of schools that say to me, now, Meg, we want something and we want it to be right. Like right is an illusion. There is no such thing as right. Every school context is unique. Every school context is different. Every staff group is different. Willingness is different. And it's about trial and error. Try things, tweak things, go again. Try things, tweak things, go again. And build the momentum instead of starting with fireworks and then it just goes nowhere. Absolutely. Um, I always say start with asking people what well-being means to them. So a beginning teacher will typically say, well-being to me means getting every, getting my lesson plans done and engaging my kids. Someone who's been teaching for you know, 10, 15 years says actually well-being for me is being able to set clear boundaries between home and work. Someone who's been teaching for 30 years says actually well-being for me is just seeing the kids smile. It's different for different people. And this is one of the other traps that heads of well-being or executive fall into with creating staff well-being strategies is they say, I know what we'll do. We'll create a morning tea where everybody has to come. But what we forget is that in our staff, some people are introverts and some people are extroverts. So what you've just done is isolate the introverts because them going to a morning tea is actually very energy draining. It's not energy giving. So our best intentions, again, have really fallen a little bit flat. So it's about having those thinking about so many different things. It's not easy. And also thinking about your environment and your culture and if it would be better to go with an opt-in model instead of mandatory training, because some mandatory training can really backfire if you don't have the majority on board. So working with the willing until more people are ready. Yeah, it's, it's a complicated space, as we know. I seem to be involved in a lot of the mandatory training. I, sometimes someone walks in the door and so I've got a trapped audience. So I have to work pretty hard to um, get people on board. But thankfully, I do. But I will have people say to me, you know, is the irony not lost on you? You're making a stay here till 6.30 and it's about well-being. And I say, what if you actually walked away with something that was great? What if it actually energised you? What if you actually learnt something? What if you actually felt appreciated and valued, which is actually secretly what you want? And then I add, there's no lock on the door. You're welcome to leave any time you like. And people invariably at the end, this I'll never forget this one particular lady. She came up to me and she said, you're all right, love. You're all right. And I said, oh, that's nice. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That's a win. And I thought, bless, you know, people are tired. Got to have compassion for each other. We're, we're doing the best we can with the resources we have. Without a doubt. So when it comes to that me level, what can people listening start to think about at this individual level? On my website, there's a free ebook. People are welcome to download the website, www.teacher-wellbeing.com.au. Um, and it's on the five domains of well-being. So there's five activities 
related to the five domains. So that's one thing they can do. Um, another thing that I have is what's called a AAA action, self-care action plan. And it's simply asking three questions. The first one is assess what's happening for me right now. So what's happening? Is it um, how am I feeling in my head, my heart, my body? What's happening for me? That's the first thing, assess. The second one is awareness, which is what do I need? I need a glass of water. I need to stretch. I need to step away. I need to go to the bathroom. I, what, what do you need? And the third one is action. Well, when are you going to do it? So assess what's happening, awareness, what do I need, action, when am I going to do it? Just checking in and asking ourselves those questions. And that might take you 10 seconds to do that. It might take you one minute to ask yourself those questions. It just helps us connect back in because our entire teaching life is connecting out and we need to connect back to in because that's how we actually recharge our energy. And as we both know, I know you've specialist in energy design, Meg, um, one of my other mantras is manage your energy, not your time. Manage your energy, not your time. Time, you can't hold it. You can't store it. You can't keep it. Um, we have it and we spend it or we have it and we invest it. Energy is something that is is moving all the time. It's such a powerful place to begin with this reflection. How am I going? What do I need? And when can I take this deliberate action? Because I'm sure you've seen it, that teachers can walk into a room and they can look at everybody in the room and they know everybody's needs, people's siblings, who's getting divorced, what's happening in everyone's family. And then if we were to ask the teacher, what do you need? They have this blank look. No idea. They do. You should see in workshops when I ask. First I ask, what does well-being mean to you? And they look at, they look at each other and look, I said, it's not a trick question and there's no right answer. They're like, oh, I've never really thought about it. I said, that's the problem. <laughs> and then when we ask, well, what do you need right now? It's like, oh, I don't really know. That's why we're asking it, I say. <laughs> it's like, oh, what a revelation. We don't stop. We're running. We're running all the time and we need, to, we need to unwind ourselves on a daily basis, not just in the holidays, on a daily basis to say, well, what, what is happening for me right now? What do I need and when will I action it? What powerful strategies to start thinking about at that me level. So when it comes to we, what are some practical things that we can start thinking about with our relationships? The first one I get people to do is really identify well, what are your top five character strengths? It's, it's a language to help me see the good stuff in me. It's the stuff that sparks me anyway, so let's identify it. One of the things that teachers are really good at giving and supporting other people with positive feedback, but when someone says something nice to them, they put up their hand and go, no, no, it's just the job. And I say, put your hand down because you secretly want to feel valued. We all just want to feel appreciated and valued. And someone appreciates and values you and you put your hand up and say no and then you go home and cry because no one appreciates you and values you. We're really good at giving. We're really bad at receiving. So we need to listen to the good stuff when it happens. And when someone says, hey, you did a really good job doing that. We need to say, thank you. I've worked really hard on it. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. But stop being a martyr and saying it's just the job because we are human beings and we need to celebrate our heart space, our passion, the fire inside of us and the spirit that we have and we share so willingly with other people. And remembering the impact that we have in every moment of every day. Absolutely. And I've got an old folder of mine here in the office is just filled with letters from students and parents 
and people that I've worked with. So every now and then when I lose my way and I forget why I'm doing what I'm doing, you look back and think, that's right. It's so true. It's so true. I've got um, a number of, it's, it's always funny, I'm feeling old now, Meg, because now I do workshops and I see teachers in the audience of people that were students that I taught. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and yeah, and it's, it's those things of, I'm still getting feedback of saying, I oh, remember when you did this. I'm like, oh, not really, but okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad it was had an impact. So yeah, we never realise where our influence stops. And so when it comes to the us level, what can leaders do? How to answer that in a simple question is really difficult. I would say start to learn something else to learn. I know you're already busy, but start to become familiar with the amazing resources that are already out there. There's a there's a wonderful podcast by Jason Van Shee on psychological health and safety. There's a People at Work website that's a government, free government website that will educate people around psychological health and safety as well. There's audits and things. And I suppose in a simple way, I always say, how do you recognize and celebrate staff? That's an easy one to start on. And in terms of workload and demands, if COVID has taught us anything, it's taught us that we can do without unnecessary meetings. We can be more flexible. So I often catch people when they say, oh, we need to get back to normal. I say there is no normal. It was tiring and stressful before COVID. We've been able to adjust. Let's not go back to normal but let's readjust to what we need and what's actually going to be sensible now. And taking the time to really get strategic around what do we need and what can we just let go? It's really not worth that investment of energy and resources from our staff. We can just let that quietly fade into the distance. Yeah, I always help people to sort of identify, well, what are the things that are you personally doing that you probably don't need to do? For example, one school I was working with, did a whole day workshop and I had a group of ladies at the front and they spent the entire day cutting out these laminated circles. And I said, ladies, what are you doing? And they're like, oh, we're cutting out circles. I said, I can see that, but why? And they went, oh, well, it's for kindergarten because we do blah, 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 and then blah, blah, and then blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, how long have you been working on that? They're like, oh, two days. I said, and what do the kids do with it? They went, oh, you know, we don't really know. Put them in their bag, put them in the bin. I said, two days of work. But that one little thing, I said, was it worth it? They're like, oh, it's just what we do. I said, well, don't tell me you're tired and you've got no time for other things because that's a dumb decision. <laughs> and it's not a matter of not going over above and beyond. It's a matter of saying, make it squares and make it a guillotine. Do you really need to laminate it? And do you really need to add on, like, make it three hours, not three days preparation? That's on us. And what you're highlighting there is valuing our own time, valuing our own precious resources. I always say, how are you investing your time today? Because we all have 24 hours in the day. It doesn't matter who you are in the world. How are you investing your time? We we live and we spend it and we think other people are taking it from us. Like, why are you taking my time away from me, this parent or this meeting? So we're investing our time. So where are you investing your time is a really powerful concept to think about. Yeah, it's a beautiful distinction to really think about. I have X amount of energy in the day and I'm going to choose to invest it wisely. I'm not just going to throw it off into the pokies and just hope. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, one of the crankiest things is when I hear people say, oh, it, we've only got nine weeks to go. And I think it's week one. If you don't want to be here, leave. <laughs> like you're wishing your life away. 
Yes, and making that deliberate choice. To wrap up this incredible conversation, Daniela, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Yeah, do it. I am inspired by. It's going to sound a big picture, but it's so true. I'm inspired by the incredible work that teachers do every day. I see how hard people have worked through COVID. I see how, uh, how much time, effort, energy people give to others. And if I'm able to give back just a small part, any part, then that's the place that I want to really uh, prioritise. So I'm always inspired by the people that I speak to, the teachers and the schools that I go, that I walk into. They're, they're amazing. They're phenomenal people. When life feels hard. When life feel, feels hard for me, I go in. One of my greatest well-being strategies is walking and walking with no noise. I just need to walk through nature and journaling. So a big part of my well-being is connecting to my spirituality. It's not a, a space that I really talk about. But when I connect back to my spirituality of just recognizing that I'm a very small part of a big picture and the universe will always give me what I need, not necessarily what I want. And I have to trust that. So I do a lot of guided meditations and journaling. And that helps me just stay back in my own skin um, and get less worried and less attached to all the other stuff and chaos that happens on the outside. An underrated skill is? Humour. Laugh more. Our work is so important and we're so tired. But my gosh, laugh and have a joke with it. It's not all that, you know, that serious as well. No student is going to leave at the end of graduating year six or graduating year 12 and say, oh, miss, you know, thank you for your colour-coded folders. It was awesome the way you laminated everything. They don't care. They care about you. They care about the connection. They care about you smiling. They need you to show up. And so you laugh more. When, we, when we're in our head, which is where we are at the moment, we're, head, it's, we're suffering high cognitive load. Um, we need to get more into our body. We need to play. We need to laugh more to lighten the load in our head. And I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the future, the potential changes in education. It's chaos at the moment in a lot of areas, but in a lot of areas it's not chaos. But I sometimes I think we have to break down to break through. And if people are feeling like the system's failing and this is failing and that's failing, I say, well, thank goodness, because let's break it so we can redo it. Daniela, thank you so much for the work you're doing in this space. It is so important. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks for inviting me. It's been, I, I love listening to the podcast. I've listened to most of them. They're fantastic. So I feel privileged to be a part of a phenomenal suite of resources. I hope this conversation has opened your mind and empowered you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel, function and relate better. To learn more about today's incredible guest and the wonderful work they are doing in the world, see the show notes for all the ways that you can connect. If you're ready to reclaim your spark and join me for this round of Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators, see the show notes for more details. If you loved this show, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn more about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.